Hello, everybody. I'm Rochelle, and tonight's Bible reading comes from Psalm 119, verses 9 to 16. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do, let, do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in the following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. One, two. Yep, we're good. Okay. Obviously, I'm not Pastor Brendan. He'll be up here directly. But um, as we are going through this series, uh, we did want to actually bring anything relevant to you so that we are actually learning from that. Uh, last week, we had a number of questions uh, that were placed in this box. This box will be up here again. Please, any questions you have about reading God's Word, make sure you put them in there. We are going to endeavor to answer um, every question that's in there. And uh, we were going to do all that on week five, but uh, we've decided not to do that. Um, we're going to actually move through and do a few of these things as we progress. Uh, there was a question asked about uh, the canon, uh, how the Bible was actually put together. We won't be answering that. That will be in week five. Uh, Pastor Darrell's going to actually touch on that uh, in that week, but the other questions we will uh, answer as we come through. So one of the questions that was actually asked was uh, if we could provide more practical illustrations and examples of uh, how to read the Bible. So I've actually put together a little booklet. Uh, it's got a number of little examples in there that you can actually use. None of these are um, preferred by myself. They're not particularly promoted by anyone. It's just a number of different methods which might actually help you. Um, I've got 10 of these. So if you're up here after the service and you're one of the 10, uh, they'll be just in front of me. Feel free to grab one of those and take it with you. If you miss out or if you prefer it electronically, uh, please send me an email or ask and uh, I'll email that out to you. We were going to print more. I even brought my computer tonight so I could do that. But unfortunately, we're having issues with the server. So uh, we won't be able to print any more this evening. But uh, in keeping with that thought and every Everything like that. We thought we'd have one person up here each week um, sharing about how they actually read the Bible. So you're stuck with me tonight. Um, so I'll just share um, what I do. And uh, this is only one method that I use. I do use a couple of different methods, but this is the one that I've actually found most beneficial. And I might have touched on it and said that I do actually use two Bibles um, because I'm just so holy and spiritual. And um, why are you people laughing? That's disgraceful. Now, I actually use two Bibles because uh, this is my Bible that remains totally unmarked. I, I don't put any markings in that Bible whatsoever. And so this is the Bible I actually read from. And uh, the reason why I, I, you know, you guys might be a lot more intelligent than me, but the reason I need a Bible that's unmarked is as soon as I open one that's marked, my eyes are drawn straight to what I've marked. And I ask why it was that I marked that. And I think I miss uh, a lot of what God would actually say to me um, if I didn't have that marked. I don't know if you'll be able to see this but this is the bible i actually mark and uh, you'll notice that there's actually six different colors um, in that bible 
and um, the colours do represent um, a few different things. Um, oh, sorry, five different colours. So uh, the first one is red. And uh, as I'm reading through scripture, what I'm looking for for the red highlighting and marking is any sins or warnings from God. What's contained in this chapter, which is a sin or warning for me, something I've got to be aware of, something I've got to be cautious about. So I'll mark that in red. Uh, purple is, is the next thing. I'm looking for God's promises, the things that he declares for us, the things that he wants us to know. And, and there's just a ton of promises contained within his word. So I mark that in purple. Yellow is actually any um, important biblical principles that God actually gives me. And uh, there's lots of yellow in there. I can tell you that. Green is biblical insights. Now, the biblical insights that I gain is anything that's new to me that day. And, and I've read through scripture so much. And, and, you know, you'd think that you wouldn't have anything new come up. But uh, I, I know I've shared with a number of you. Sometimes I phone you or I send you a message and I say, hey, God just said this. Isn't that awesome? And it's something that I've read a thousand times. But for some reason, it jumped out that day. So that's something that's fresh. I mark that in green. And then blue is background information. Anything that's, you know, spoken about that, that gives you greater insight into the whole chapter and passage that you're reading. Um, I think on top of those things, we need to take things in context. What, what is God saying to me? What is God saying to the people at the time? Who's being written to? And what does that mean to them? What does it mean to me? And uh, one way you can actually do that if you've got a substantial amount of money is to buy this awesome commentary series. Uh, when I was going through Bible college, they said if there's only one commentary series you can own, make sure you get the NIV. Um, so the NIV commentary series is one that actually has um, the original context, then it has um, bridging context, and then it has a, a section on application for today. It is an outstanding series, but to purchase that, you're going to be looking at somewhere in the vicinity of $1,500, I think. Um, so it isn't cheap, but if you want to have a look at those types of things, I'm more than happy to um, loan that out to people. Uh, I do want those back, though. I've lost about four or $500 worth of books. I, I really want the NIV series back though. Um, and if you're wondering about the colours, these are highlighters, um, giving a plug for uh, Kurong here because I don't know where else you'd get them. These are not cheap, okay. This little pack cost me 15 bucks but uh, I've had this for about six years. They're still going strong. So these are the highlighters I use in script in my Bible and um, they don't actually bleed through the pages. That's why you've possibly got to pay extra for them. So um, yeah, that's what I do. If you've got any questions at all, if you missed what I said, because I know I speak very, very fast, I'm sorry about that, um, please come, feel free to come and ask me, but uh, we will be more than happy to share more stuff with you. Thank you. There we go. Good evening, everyone. I apologize for my voice. I'm either on the tail end of some kind of throat thing, or alternatively, I'm experiencing a kind of burst of manliness as a result of this beard. Um, one or the other. Um, so, let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about observing through God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. Um, and Lord, we thank you that we can uh, put it in our hearts, that we can pursue you through it. Um, we ask that that will be our mission, Lord, to live according to your word by hiding it in our hearts so that we don't stray. 
teach us, Holy Spirit, to meditate and to delight and rejoice in the scriptures given to us. And be with us now as we seek to learn better how to pursue you in your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are now in our second week of the How to Weed second week of the How to Read the Bible series. Last week, Charlie talked about how we prepare ourselves for the act of reading Scripture. We go in with the right goals to hear what God is saying to us in Scripture and what he's saying to us through it, and, uh, and not looking just for a snippet of Scripture to justify uh, to ourselves or to hijack God's word for our validation. We come to Scripture because we believe that God spoke through it and speaks through it, and that he wants to speak to us. And part of that is approaching the Bible with humility as well. It's uh, knowing that our character and our motivations are as important to the technique as you important as the technique itself that you employ. And so, a humble reader can see that Scripture um, is saying uncomfortable things that challenge them. But if you're an arrogant reader, you miss those things. Uh, You'll step over them. You may ignore them. Uh, And if you're reading to have your preconceived opinion reinforced, then you're not going to read well. And if you are reading. if, if this is one of the reasons you can't, for example, just, just throw scripture at someone who doesn't believe in scripture's authority, because they won't read it well, they won't understand it particularly well. Thus, if you have someone uh, who is walking without God, they may say fairly genuinely, I read the whole Bible and it's the worst book I ever read, and it's full of contradictions and bad advice. And then they'll come to Christ and they'll read it again with humility, and it'll be actually quite literally like reading it for the first time with new eyes, with a new heart as a new person. But this week we're talking about making observations as we read through scripture. We're talking about extracting the most kind of data, the clearest set of understanding and meaning we can just from the text we're operating in. And some call this a kind of detective work, and that's true. It's like crime scene investigator kind of detective work. And if you've read a detective novel or seen a police investigation procedural TV show uh, in the last 50 years, you kind of know how all that stuff works at this point. Your detective shows up at the crime scene, the whole thing is taped off, separated from everything else to stop people just wandering through and wrecking it and contaminating the evidence. The detective goes around, it's a burglary. How do we know? Well, the window is broken, the door's open, and the silverware is gone. Pretty good clue, probably a burglary. They check out the window, ah, but the glass is broken onto the inside. That means the criminal broke in through the window and didn't pick the lock on the door and then have to smash the window to escape. They smashed in through the window and then left through the door. What other evidence do we have? Well, there's muddy footprints. What do we know about these footprints? Well, they're small. It's probably a lady burglar or a younger younger person. Um, The footprints go straight to the cabinet and then out again. Someone probably knows the house pretty well and what they were looking for. And the shoes were not removed immediately upon emptying the house. Probably not an Asian burglar. Um, (laughs) So by looking at the scene, the detective determines we're looking for a non-Asian child or lady burglar who knows the house well enough to find the goods, not well enough to have a key. And all the stuff... Um, all the stuff that gets done with the evidence later, talking to other witnesses and comparing to similar crimes and trying to establish a whole narrative. Um, that's important too, but we're kind of putting that stuff more or less in the category of interpretation. We'll be looking at that next week. This week we're about the passage we are in and what we can observe about it and, um, so that we can start looking for context and other tools and technique uh, later on with this good foundation. And so. Starting at the biggest considerations, you're going to have to pick a Bible to read. And since the biblical texts are written in Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew, we are relying on translations for the English reader, and your translation will impact the way that you read Scripture. Now, this is kind of a 
Well, here's the short version of this point before I expand on it a little bit. If you don't read much in general and you really appreciate clarity and accessibility in the text, um, which is most people, use an NIV Bible. That's the version that we have right here, the one that we use for our readings because it's good. It's, it's um, translated from the oldest available manuscript. It's a fine instrument for looking through scripture. If you like to read and you feel that you're pretty savvy with words and your reading comprehension is pretty good and um, you just want your translation to be as directly literal as possible, then use the ESV Bible. ESV is also translated from the oldest available manuscripts, but the text is a little more exact at the risk of being a little less clear. Um, and that's kind of the short version. Don't despair if you have another version. I'm sure they're fine, but broadly, NIV and ESV are the top contenders for Bible study um, in popularity presently. Uh, in addition to the King James and the New King James, but we'll talk about King James a little bit later. So those two translations are the ones that I would recommend broadly. Each one of the pastors, um, I think, has one or two others they like to use as well. They find pretty helpful. We'll talk about that on panel night. But why one translation over another at all? Why does it matter? If it's all the Bible, what matters about those, uh, what's different about them really that could be substantial? And if some of them aren't really scripture because they're so different, then why do we have them at all? Why do we tolerate them existing in a sense? Um, well, we can put Bible translations into a few categories. We'll get there. Um, there's kind of three kinds of categories. There's uh, three main, and then sort of a basket of oddballs we're not gonna talk about tonight. Uh, but this is the reason that we have three categories that you can see up there. This is James chapter one, verses two and three. This is what comes up when you type into Google, James one interlinear. And you can do that yourself if you're interested in seeing pre-translation scripture. You take the Bible Hub link and bam, off you go. Now, the translation should theoretically be easy. We have the equivalent words. We can just put them in English. And so if you directly translate word for word right away, James chapter one, verses two to three reads like this. All joy esteem it, brothers of me, when trials you might fall into, there are various, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, or produces endurance. Not super clear or helpful, um, read directly like that, and there's your problem. Now, biblical languages use different grammar rules, and to get what the text is trying to communicate to us, the translators have to do a bit of work to make the English readable, and the translators approach that in roughly three ways. The first way is this idea that the most important thing is that we don't distort the text at all. We call those literal translations, um, or directly literal translations. We're gonna translate the word uh, as word for word as we possibly can, even if it comes out kind of clunky and hard to read on the other side. Second way, we'd say the most important thing is that uh, to get every thought that the author is trying to communicate in a clear way in modern English so that we can understand what is actually being said. We have to be willing to give a little bit of a less direct translation of the words so that the meaning can be clear in scripture. That's what they call a dynamic equivalence translation or a dynamic translation. And the third way to translate is to say, look, it's too small just to look at words and phrases and thoughts like that. You have to zoom right out to a higher level at the point at which the author is telling the story or making their point. You find the thrust and the essence of what they're saying in a kind of a bigger picture. And then you try and say that again entirely with your own words. It's what we call a paraphrase translation. It's a different one, again. And so, this is James 1, 2 to 3 in the ESV, in the NIV and the message. Um, 
starting to compare the first two. The ESV says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The NIV says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The ESV chooses terms like count it all joy and steadfastness instead of consider it pure joy and perseverance because translators felt this was a more direct, um, untainted translation of these words, even though people don't really use words like steadfastness and count it all joy in modern English. And so those terms may, I don't know, uh, throw someone off a little bit when they read it for the first time. The NIV worries that the meaning will get lost without a dynamic attempt to make those parts of the, the sentence readable in a modern way, so they go that little extra distance to try and uh, translate it more clearly. But the big difference that we can all see, you probably noticed, is brothers versus brothers and sisters that you get in the text there. James is writing to everyone in the 12 tribes of Israel who follow Jesus, wherever they are, male and female alike, and the NIV says, well, the Greek word adelphoi translates to brothers, but they use it kind of gender neutrally here, just like today I can say, come on guys, and you can assume I mean just sort of everyone. So the NIV renders that brothers and sisters and has no problem with that. The ESV says, the text says brothers, so we're writing brothers and we're gonna trust the reader to know that this is to include women as well. And now down at the bottom of that page, you have the message uh, translation, the paraphrase Bible, which comes out considerably different. It says, consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. Now, that one, you can really feel the difference um, because it's a total paraphrase. They've got the idea and they said, okay, well, this is kind of what they're trying to say. Um, it's the translator's best effort to present a general meaning of the passage in their own words. He doesn't even say brothers and sisters, he just says friends. And then he adds this kind of expression at the end there that your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. It's not a, a bad message in general, but it's fairly loosely matching the text at all. In fact, um, I'd say that's kind of a bad translation because saying that your faith shows its true colors, it loses the idea that perseverance or, or uh, steadfastness is a virtue that you should be building up that assists your faith. And so without any malice towards Christians who read paraphrase Bibles, when we are studying scripture and looking for details, you need either the dynamic equivalence type Bible or a literal translation because paraphrase Bibles do a lot of smoothing over of the details. In fact, Eugene Peterson, the guy who translated the Message Bible, probably the most popular paraphrase, um, says pretty explicitly that that is not meant to replace a Bible study Bible. It's meant just for your kind of casual reading, for flowing readability, maybe to provide a new perspective, not to replace uh, a genuine kind of direct-to-translation Bible which you'd use to study. I'd still give the message to friends and relatives, particularly unchurched ones, who were just putting a toe in the water of Christianity. Um, but disciples really need something a bit firmer to work with. And if you don't know which kind of Bible yours is, here's a quick list. Get your little translation, you've got your ASV, AMP, CEV, ESV, NASB, NET, KJV and NKJV. Dynamic NI, look, you can, you can read it. If you see yours on there, then that's kind of where you stand. Or you can just Google yours and it'll tell you. Um, but try to have one of the literal ones or one of the dynamic ones, or ideally both. It's pretty good to have an NIV and an ESV side by side, and you can uh, jump between them or compare them if you feel like one is um, not bringing the detail that you're looking for. 
And a quick word on the King James family of Bibles. Um, it can't be understated, or rather it can't be overstated, um, how much impact that the King James Bible has had, not only on the church, but on the way people think and speak in English-speaking countries. Um, it makes some translation choices that most other Bibles don't, and it weighs different manuscripts differently because it does an excellent job for everything they had available in 1611 when it was translated. Um, but there's been a lot of Bible scholarship and other manuscripts and things uncovered in the last 400 years, so the KJV Bibles are not the best option for detailed study anymore. More on that when Daryl talks about how the canon was composed. Um, so there are some people, nonetheless, who regard the King James as the special, perfect translation, almost at kind of another level of inspiration, uh, which renders all other Bibles as a kind of heresy. Don't believe those people, they are wrong. If you are studying the Bible to seek after God's word and God's will, then the NIV or the ESV, probably where it's at or something like that. Um, and if you're looking for a quote to have engraved on a sword, King James Bible is where you want to go. So now we have a translation that we can trust in detail. We've secured the crime scene, if you will. Next, we have a consideration for the genre of the book that we are reading. Because as we know, the Bible is not just one book but it is 66 books written by dozens of authors and authorial communities over some 1,500 years about events which span thousands of years. And just as you can't pick up an encyclopedia and then just read it like a mystery novel end to end, well, I suppose you can, but it won't be very fulfilling. Um, you can't just read a newspaper like you'd read a postcard. You can't just read all of the books of the Bible with the same expectations. It's not just sort of the same thing all the way through because we're going to be asking questions and making observations as we study. Who is speaking? Who are they speaking to? Why are they saying it? Uh, when and where did this exchange take place? And does that matter? Um, and some of these questions are more or less relevant depending on the genre that you are reading. And the major genres you'll find in scripture are these ones you can see on the screen there. You have a narrative, pretty common. Narrative is the story-like structure we're familiar with because like the biblical cultures, we are a storytelling culture describes events taking place at a certain time to certain people. They happen one after another. God creates light. He divides the waters. He creates the dry ground. Moses is born. Moses grows up. He runs away from his crime. He meets God. God sends him back. Narratives are often the most fun to read because they have that kind of story-like quality to them. Then you've got poetry. Poetry is probably the genre that we struggle with the hardest. And by we, I mean like everyone in the English-speaking world at this point, because poetry basically got abandoned as an art form and is only very slowly like, kicking along in the background, practiced by people that maybe you occasionally will go and see. Um, I don't, but anyway. The point is, poetry is kind of difficult, because it's not really something we do much of anymore. And that's a shame, because we have to develop an appreciation for poetry at some level to develop an appreciation for the Psalms, which are poetry and for the songs that we'll find in the Bible occasionally in little bits and pieces. It's not going to click at once reading the Psalms like narrative might. Uh, poetry might reference historical events, but it's not meant to be limited to a specific time frame. It's trying to express themes and concepts with imagery and passion. The Psalms and the Song of Solomon um, and the moments through the narratives like Mary's song are part of this genre. Onto the wisdom books that we have. Wisdom books are instructional books. They are written by an author for a purpose of giving the reader something clear to take away. It's, an it's basically all application from end to end. 
Uh, in narratives, the lessons have to be in inferred from what happens. Wisdom literature just tells you straight up, this is what you need to do. Don't commit adultery. Uh, if you have anything clever to say, be quiet so you don't sound stupid. Wives are good, get one. Try and keep her happy. Friends tell painful truths, but not just flattering lies, that kind of thing. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are wisdom books in the Old Testament. And you could say that James's letter is something close to a wisdom book in the New Testament, the way it sort of jumps from one uh, authoritative topic about how we should act to another. In prophecy, you've got your Isaiahs and your Ezekiels and your Jeremiahs and your Daniels. Sometimes there's a little narrative mixed in with them. You get a bit of the, the story of that prophet moving around. But mostly, the books that are named after the prophets come under the prophecy genre. God gives a prophet an oracle, usually a warning or a direction for his people. It shows us God's position before his people at that time. He shows grace, but he doesn't ultimately tolerate the ongoing rejection to him by those who should know better. Often there are strange and powerful images in prophecy, or some that are left unexplained or mysterious. And sometimes those unexplained ones make sense later on in the light of further scripture or history. So the beasts that rock up in Daniel's visions uh, were very strange to him at the time, but we can look back and say, hey, these match pretty well to the empires that were arriving in the world one after the other at that time. It was a prophecy about that region of the world and who would conquer it and how that would affect God's people. And when we read prophecy, we're looking for what God is saying to his people and why he's saying it and whether or not they respond. Now, the gospel, gospel is a different, uh, kind of a different genre on its own. This has been a discussion for a long time with like big theological heads of whether or not that's a narrative or if it's a biography or something else. But it's kind of in between a narrative and a biography in the way it's written. They're a bit like a narrative in that they follow the events and the happenings in the life of Jesus Christ. They're mostly chronological, but the gospel writers, and particularly John, don't feel any particular compulsion to put these things in the order they happened. They just want you to know that they all happened. And it's also a biography because the purpose is not just telling us something that happened at 30 AD. The purpose is to show us who Jesus is by recording the events of his life and the substance of his words. And they do this because Jesus revealed who he was by the events of his life and the substance of his words. So in the Gospels, more than any other genre, we have to ask, what is this passage illuminating about Jesus to us? What did Luke, um, why did Luke tell this story and not one of the other hundreds of stories he must have known about from Jesus' life? And what does it show? Then we have the epistles. Epistles are an instructive letter. They tend to be sent for a reason, to correct something or um, to encourage someone. The author identifies themselves and who they're writing to. Usually they uh, tell why they're writing in the first place. They have instructions. Paul, Peter, and John all write to correct faltering believers or to encourage them or to rebuke troublemakers or to add to their theological teaching to the church they're writing to. And finally, apocalypse is a genre of its own. Um, Obviously, the book of Revelation, but many parts of other prophetic writings um, forecast this kind of dim or smoky vision of God's ultimate plan to defeat sin and death in the world and to create a new world beyond that. Apocalypse is different from prophecy because it describes the end state of creation and the final chapter in God's plan in the world, not personal ultimatums to his people or to a people group. When you're reading Apocalypse, you're looking for what this vision is telling us about God's ultimate plan. 
What does it tell us about him and his character that this would be his ultimate plan? Death will be cast into the fire. Pain and suffering will be no more. Everyone will be called to account for their sins. Now, these genres are uh, different, and getting to know the difference is helpful because they demand different questions. Gospels want you to know who Jesus is by the things that he says and who he says them to and how he acts. By contrast, the book of Proverbs has really very little to say about Jesus specifically at all, aside from the vaguest connection that being the kind of person who acts wisely means we are being more Christ-like. So know the kind of book that you are reading before you start asking questions and making observations. So we're going to take a passage here from Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, as an example passage. This is out of the NIV. It's Jesus offering a parable. So the genre we have is gospel. And I know this is telling me something about Jesus and who he is. And for that matter, I know that a parable is a sort of a genre within itself. It's a wisdom story to to tell us sort of a divine meaning inside of an earthly kind of story. And if we were studying this, I'd normally print it out and I'd scribble all over it before I made a mark in a Bible, but um, I've marked out, or I will mark out as we go along, the verses uh, and the little uh, bits and pieces to note that I found as we go along. First thing I do is is try and make the verse breaks pretty apparent, so I put the numbers in blue there. you want to read through it once or twice in pretty good detail to make sure that you, are, uh, you have a vision of what the whole chapter is about or the whole passage is about before you start picking bits and pieces out. And so the verse, verses go like this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to, pray, to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted." So, some obvious questions that work perfectly fine in gospel genre, certainly, are your who, your what, your when, your where, your, your uh, grade four reading comprehension test questions. Uh, who is speaking in this passage? Well, we know that uh, Luke is the author of the gospel. He speaks as narrator a little bit in the first verse, but most of the other verses are Jesus speaking. This is Jesus talking. And to whom is he saying it? Well, verse nine tells us there were people there who were confident in their own righteousness. This is what the parable is about. Jesus tells a parable on the spot about two people, one a self-righteous Pharisee, one a guilt-racked tax collector. Now the when and where in the story that Jesus is telling um, doesn't appear to be important enough for Luke to take note of. It's part of Jesus' collected teachings that Luke records without that specific information. But the why is definitely there. We can see it because Jesus tips us off with a joining word down there, that little four. He tells us the conclusion of this parable. The tax collector is justified. The Pharisee is not. Why does he conclude this? For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. So any little joining words like that, like for, so, but, therefore, uh, they're all doing work to draw contrasts and connections inside the text. You should take note of them because they're tying bits and pieces of the scripture together. So that's something for which to look. And there are others in there of that kind. There are two buts and a rather. 
Um, and they're all comparing things in this case. Each time they're comparing self-righteousness and humility. It's contrasting the two characters in the parable. It's a hinge in a comparative statement. And so they reveal as they do that something else we should be looking for, and that's repetition. When you see patterns and repetition, there are something that's, or something that's being highlighted for us by patterns and repetition. Um, they are there to draw attention to details in the text. And so we notice that the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, and the tax collector stood at a distance and said. And that's pretty clear um, implied that, the, that stood, the way they are standing in God's temple is something that's meant to be directly compared. The Pharisee has uh, gone up to the temple. He's separated himself from the crowd that you'd expect at the temple. He's made himself visible. He's loudly pronounced how righteous he is. The tax collector stood at a distance. He separates himself too, but out of shame rather than out of, uh, out of pride. He doesn't adopt a posture of prayer or lift up his hands. He doesn't even look up. He can't bear to look up. He just makes this little odd gesture. He beats his breast. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, it's not something we do in our culture. Unless you have like a, a mouthful of something go down the wrong pipe, you don't usually beat your breast. Um, and if that was a really confusing thing, and I was saying, what really is that? This is where I'd go to a commentary or compare with another translation to try and puzzle it out. But here, it's a pretty intuitive idea. He's hitting himself. He, um, like he knows he's worthy of punishment. It's a physical gesture that shows he has lost respect for himself, where the Pharisee has so much respect for himself that he won't shut up about it. And when the tax collector opens his mouth, he's not boasting or telling God how lucky he is to have him. He's asking for mercy and recognizing that he is a sinner. So those patterns show emphasis on what we're supposed to be comparing in the passage. And the joining words show us connections. And it's worth keeping track as well of your verbs. There you go. Um, verbs are the doing words, as your primary school teachers no doubt told you, and you probably remember. Um, verbs show us the flow of a passage. They show us what's going on and what's happening precisely. And so that comes out looking quite thoroughly highlighted there. And sometimes when you pick them out, particularly in large passages with run-on sentences, they can help you make sense of the scene or the uh, intention of what's being described in the text. In this case, it just reinforces what we've already seen. Jesus has identified these uh, prideful, arrogant people in his audience, and he's telling a thinly-veiled story about them. It might be seen as an encouragement to those who are humble and struggling uh, to see the point of trying to be justified before God if being justified before God is something you can only do if you are elite and rich. Or simply as a way to uh, throw additional shade on the Pharisees that Jesus never likes to miss an opportunity to uh, direct his attention to in that way. Now we could keep picking at smaller and smaller details, but that seems pretty thorough for a short passage to me. And it all comes out of just a little reading comprehension as you go through a little common sense and just kind of being aware, observing, asking those questions. Being aware of the genre that we're reading, using a Bible that we can trust to present the detail to us. And so I encourage you then to pick a chapter, pick a passage, or whatever portion is next in your own reading. Take some time with it. Focus on picking out the details. If you're more attentive when you write, if that's something you need to do, then write out the passage as you observe. There'll be plenty of suggestions in these fine little booklets that Charlie's printed out if you're one of the lucky ten, or if you harass him with emails. 
And you'll find that as you get into the habit, that you'll become more natural at this. Biblical observation is like any other skill and it gets better and easier the more you do it. You'll be noticing things that you've never noticed before, just like Charlie said. Your capacity to analyze scripture grows as you flex that skill. And then years later, you'll read the same passage. And if you've been observing intentionally in the time between, you will notice more things still. This is part of the reason that the Bible is such a timeless, bottomless document. Uh, Since it's speaking to your character as you grow and develop your relationship with God, the Spirit is able to reveal more and more detail in the text and application for your life. Thus, you may read the same book every day of your life forever and never exhaust the value it has for you. So please, if you'll use it, come and grab one of those little booklets. Um, And if you have questions at all about interpreting the Bible, if you want us to answer those, then put those in the box there. Please participate in this series. It's, It's a lot of fun. I like this. And take the time this week, absolutely, to engage with God's Word intentionally and regularly, observing carefully as you go. And don't be surprised if he uses that time to engage with you. Now let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us enough to give us help in pursuit of your ways and we thank you that amazingly you have such faith in us that you put us, you give us a lot of charge over that pursuit, giving us the capacity to succeed or fail at each step. So help us succeed, Lord. Help us to go to Scripture rightly, with the right attitude, to go humbly, to engage with open eyes and fresh curiosity and attention to detail. Help us this week as we engage to see things that we have never seen before in places we've seen a hundred times before. And draw us always, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit into a deeper knowledge of your Son and relationship with Him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.